Let's now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we'll read the first 23 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they said to him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple, and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the Jews, again referring particularly to the Jewish leaders, uh, Jesus broke the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath by healing this lame man on the Sabbath and uh, then by directing him to to carry his mat, uh, that uh, pallet, that uh, small mattress or uh, small, a small bed-like place where he would lay. And in their judgment, this made him worthy of death. And uh, no doubt their goal was to kill him. That's made clear in verse 16. They sought to kill him. In verse 17, Jesus goes uh, right to the heart of the matter in his reply 
to uh, these charges. And it may be that this was kind of a formal answer to them because uh, we're given notice of the, the Jews' intent and then immediately we're given an account of Jesus' answer to them implies uh, implying a kind of confrontation uh, be, well, between them. Whatever the setting may be, uh, Jesus answered these accusations. And uh, then what we have before us in our text this uh, morning certainly is among the most profound testimonies that Jesus gave concerning who he is, who he is as one with the Father, as one who is worthy of divine honor. And uh, we're, re- we're, we're taught in this passage without any doubt that whatever anyone might think of Jesus, uh, whether past or present, if they do not recognize him as such, as the Son of God, one with the Father, uh, worthy of the same honor as the Father, uh, whatever response they give to him is not at all acceptable, acceptable according to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And this passage makes that abundantly clear as Jesus proclaims uh, his divine sonship. And we're going to consider that, that proclamation in, in those three ways that are indicated in the outline there, beginning with Jesus' proclamation of his sonship as worker with the Father. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, it's interesting that Jesus here doesn't uh, uh, go to uh, defend his um, Sabbath work, his Sabbath activity activity as uh, lawful. Uh, we did observe briefly that what he did indeed was lawful uh, to do on the on the Sabbath, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus asked the Jews at one point in a rhetorical way, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? The implied answer is, well, yes, of course. And, uh, and so what he did was in accord with the fourth commandment, and what he told the healed man to do was in accord with the fourth commandment. When he commanded him to take up his mat and walk, he wasn't commanding him to to bear a burden in a way that's forbidden by the law, as if he were involved in daily work, but rather he simply uh, commanded him to rise, demonstrating the reality of his healing as he carried his mat. So indeed, Jesus could well have defended his action, but he goes beyond that. He raises issues that are far beyond what is lawful for him to do as a man under the law which he indeed was. But rather, he proclaims himself as the one who works, who works as the divine son uh, along with his father. We might say that he puts an equal sign between his father's works and his own works. There in verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father has been working until now. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting that he doesn't say our father. From the outset, he claims a unique relationship to God as his father. And uh, throughout our text, he refers to himself without any question uh, as the son, proclaiming a uniqueness to his relationship 
uh, to the Father. And his following statements, indeed, uh, cannot be taken at face value without affirming his equality with the Father. And in that sense, he is likewise at the same time affirming his divine nature. There's no question about that. But what Jesus does is uh, especially to proclaim his union with the Father in doing the works that his Father gave him to do as the sent one. Jesus does not deny the correctness of the Jews' accusation uh, that he is one with the Father, although they put it in terms and in language that implies uh, a kind of presumptuous, arrogant judgment. He made himself equal with God. No, he didn't make himself equal with God. Yes, he declared himself in a way that implies that, but it's not some uh, reckless, blasphemous claim he was equal with God. He thought that equality not something to be grasped in terms of its manifestation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. But everything he says following that makes clear that indeed he is one with the Father. But he claims his unique relationship as the Son in terms of working with the Father, doing the works that his Father gave him to do as the sent one. His works are in complete harmony with those of the Father. For one thing, he does the same works as the Father. In uh, verse um, 17, Jesus says, My Father has been working until now. And we might ask, well, what, what is he, he referring to here? Well, remember that there is the whole question of Sabbath observance on the table, so to speak. And we know also that God rested on the seventh day from his work. That is, God ceased from his work of creation. And in that sense, he rested from that work. And uh, we're even told that he was refreshed. He, he delighted in his finished work. But does that mean that on this seventh day, it's kind of an open-ended day in Genesis. It's not even marked by morning and evening that God then became idle. No, of course not. It is a passage that helps us to distinguish between God's work of creation and God's work of providence. Creation is a special work of God, which he completed in six days. But that doesn't mean that from there on God is inactive and idle. Jesus says, my father is working until now. He continues to uphold the world that he has made. He continues to uh, show forth his goodness and his gifts in nourishing and preserving and providing for all the creatures that he has made. So yes, my father, Jesus says, is working until now, and I am working. And you put those things together, and indeed we're confronted with the divine Power and providential work of the Son of God. Whatever he says, whatever, whatever he does in verse 19, the Son also does in like manner. And that refers back to the Father's working until now. Now we know that the Son of God was present and active in creation. We're told in the book of Hebrews in uh, the first chapter, uh, that uh, God created the, the world uh, 
through Christ, through whom he made the worlds is the language. But in the next verse, it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's a reference to Christ. Christ active in creation as the eternal son. Christ continuing to uh, be active in upholding the world uh, that he has made. So he is the one who does the same works as the Father and in like matter. But secondly, he works. He works as the revealer of the Father's works. In verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. In chapter 17, in what is called the the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus, he says, I have finished the works which you have given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. Jesus finished the works that he was given to do, that he willingly undertook to do, and they serve to glorify the Father. He does the Father's works as the one who is sent by the Father. And as such, he then reveals the Father in those works. Remember what he said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He does marvelous works, uh, works that are yet greater than the healing of this lame man on the Sabbath. There is far more to come, more that will leave the Jews uh, astounded to marvel with astonishment, perhaps uh, not, not in the way of worship, but in the way of dismay. Jesus proclaims his divine sonship as worker uh, with the Father. Secondly, he proclaims his sonship as life giver. A life giver as the Father is a life giver. There in verse 21, uh, the Lord Jesus says, For as the Father gives life, or as, as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. To give life is a, a power that belongs to God. And it's a power that uh, belongs to God alone. In Acts chapter 17, in Paul's uh, proclamation, there to uh, those in, in Athens where they were worshiping uh, along with their other pantheon of gods. They had an altar to the unknown God. And Paul proclaims this God as uh, the one who has made from one blood every nation of the earth, as the one who is no, in no need of anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is the one uh, who gives life. He gives life where there is no life at all. In uh, Romans chapter uh, 5, we read of God that he gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And here the reference is to God's power in giving conception to Sarah, uh, who was, uh, in effect, already dead with respect to uh, the normal uh, time of uh, fertility in the childbearing years. And uh, Abraham was not weak in faith. He did not consider his own body 
uh, already dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He gave glory to God, a God who gives life, a God who calls things uh, into existence, calls things that are not to be. He gives life where there is no life. He gives life where uh, where there is but death. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, again, it's a it's a very important passage in this connection because God proclaims His His absolute uh, uniqueness, if you will. In verse 39, where it says, "Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides Me. I kill." And I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. There is one God. God alone is God. And he is the life giver. He gives life where there is death. And then we hear in the words of our Lord Jesus that the Son, likewise, is sovereign over life. Even so is the language that he uses. The Son of Man gives life, and He gives life to whomever He wills. So it's not simply a a proclamation of His divine power, but of His divine sovereignty, similar to what the Lord Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 11, where He says, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. An effective revelation of the Father. The revelation of the Father that not only uh, enters our ears and our intellects and some feelings, but a revelation of the Father that produces life, faith, repentance. That too is a sovereign work of the Son. He has authority indeed and power to impart spiritual life. And he has authority and power indeed to to literally uh, raise the dead. In fact, we'll consider that next time from verses 25 and following, where the Lord Jesus elaborates on this life-giving power in various ways. And that power would be demonstrated to the Jews. They would know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't doubt it. They marveled at it. They were provoked by it. They were enraged with the desire to kill him all the more, and even to kill Lazarus. They wanted to kill him in order to bury the proof of Jesus' power who raised him from the dead. They would hear of Jesus' own resurrection, that he indeed, as he said, had power to lay down his life and power uh, to take it up again. In fact, not only they, but all people would eventually, most certainly, and inescapably face Jesus' authority and power. In fact, the Lord Jesus, even at his trial before the high priest, assured him of that. Jesus was silent before all those uh, ridiculous, you might say, trumped-up charges against him. But when uh, the high priest asked him if he was the Christ, yes, he acknowledged, he confessed that he was the Christ. And he says, and hereafter, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power, referring to the right hand of God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. You would be confronted with the divine power of Christ as judge. 
And that's the third thing that the Lord Jesus proclaims concerning his divine sonship. He uh, proclaims that he is the son who is uh, one with the father as that is manifested, as he is the judge uh, by the father. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment uh, to the son. Now, there are tremendous descriptions of the day of judgment in the Bible. Uh, a few of them, one being uh, Daniel uh, chapter chapter 7, where we have this vision that Daniel was given in uh, verse 7. He says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And, and we have similar imagery in uh, another apocalyptic uh, book of Scripture with highly figurative language. Uh, here again, concerning the day of judgment in Revelation 20, where it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Tremendous descriptions of that great day of judgment. And we're given to understand by the words of our Lord Jesus here in the days of his humiliation that he will preside. He will be the judge. In Acts chapter 17, again, that passage that I referred to where Paul proclaims uh, Jesus, he proclaims him also as, as judge. It says there in uh, verse 31 of chapter 17 that uh, God uh, overlooked these former times of ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, we're given this description from the mouth of our Lord Jesus of that day of judgment, where he, as the king, has the sheep on the right hand, and the goats on the left hand. And he judges them with tremendous and eternal consequences for them. This is not an honorary position that Jesus is given. 
It's not that, that Jesus simply is the Father's representative and, and, and part of his exaltation is to let him engage in this work. But really, it's, it's God that is judging the world. Oh yes, it is God indeed who judges the world. But God the Son particularly, who judges as the true God and Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10, just another reference to that. It's an essential part of the proclamation of the gospel we're given to hear. He commanded us, Paul says, to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That's part of the gospel proclamation that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says. Now this glory of the Son of Man, as he is uh, most characteristically referred to by himself in the Gospels. This glory uh, is not something that is only made clear in the New Testament. It is made known in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, for example, further on in that passage that I read from Daniel, we read in 13 and following, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. We just heard that reference in Jesus' words to uh, Caiaphas. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Or think of Psalm 2. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill, and there he sits as judge, with a summons to, to kiss the sun. Give obeisance to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In fact, we might also say that this judgment that the Lord Jesus described is not something that is that is only limited to that last and final day of judgment. In fact, later on in this very chapter, Jesus says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. However God judges now, so the Son judges. That's again clear in the language uh, that our Savior uses. He does these very works of the Father. So Christ proclaims his Sonship in these three ways, as the worker along with the Father, as one who raises the dead, as the Father does as the one who judges all by the Father, that all might honor the Son as they honor the Father. See, that's that's where everything is leading, isn't it? That leads to Jesus' conclusion there in verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And yes, this is Jesus here speaking. And though he speaks of himself in the third person, referring to uh, the Son, there's no question that he is referring to himself. The Jews understood that very clearly. And they consider it to be outrageous. And indeed, we're, we're left with no alternative to either agree with, with them that this is such an outrageous, incredible statement, unbelievable and blasphemous, or... It makes so abundantly clear that we are to hear the voice of our God in these words 
of the Son. This is a most solemn, a, a most critical revelation of Scripture concerning Jesus Christ. It's not just incidental that our text begins with the words, most assuredly. Now, we can hear those words, and I think they can lose something of our impact. I must say, I still personally prefer the old authorized version rendering of this. Verily, verily. Or truly, truly. In the literal, in, in the, the Greek language, it's amen. Amen. That's how Jesus introduces most solemn declarations. Calling everyone to listen. Pay attention. Hear this. Take heed to it. It is of critical importance. We're taught here, brothers and sisters, that there is there is no kind of religion that honors God without so honoring Christ. In fact, there's nothing so dishonoring to the Father and the Son than common notions that we hear tossed about all the time. Things like, well, all religions are basically the same. All, all religions, they basically worship the same God. And whatever differences there are, they're not important. Never let a statement like that go unchallenged. If you're going to be a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, do not agree with such things. It's the height of dishonor to God and to his Son. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. That doesn't mean that, oh, somehow behind the scenes, when people believe in God, it's actually Jesus that's saving them. No, they come to God, they seek God through the one and only way that God has appointed, through Jesus Christ. Positively, brothers and sisters, this means taking Jesus' words to heart, that we ourselves revere and worship Him. As God, as God manifested in the flesh. And that means that we ought to fear his judgment. That we ought to fear his judgment so as to seek refuge in the only way of escaping from that judgment, right? I, I quoted, you know, the, the uh, reference of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of that which was done in the body, whether good or bad. And then, he, and then he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. doesn't mean that Paul lived in terror of condemnation or judgment, but he knew what a solemn thing it is that all people would appear before Christ to give an account to him with tremendous consequences. And that moved him to seek to persuade men to take refuge in this very one who was made sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him, so that we might know our judge as our Savior. Isn't that, isn't that the comfort that Christians take in, in uh, the fact that Christ is our judge? How does Christ return to judge comfort you? In all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. The time is coming when all the people of the world, apart from Christ, are going to cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him who sits upon the throne and of the Lamb. To honor the Son as we honor the Father means that we must put our trust in him. 
You believe in God, Jesus said in uh, chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Believe also in me. Believe in him. Believe in him uh, so as to confess him. Confess him as our Lord and Savior. To do that among God's people. To hear God's claim upon you, young people. Whoever of you who have not yet confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't let that rest. Don't put it on the shelf. Don't think maybe someday, if you have doubts and fears, be very earnest and serious about seeking to resolve them. And feel the Lord's claim upon you to honor him, to honor him as the Savior and Lord. Confess him in this world. You know that there's there's nothing distinctly Christian at all about believing in God, right? There's nothing distinctly Christian about saying, I believe in God. Jews and Muslims believe in God. In fact, most people, if you ask them if they believe in God, they'll, they'll say that they believe in God. The Christian testimony is not, I believe in God. It is that, but it's more than that. I'm not to dismiss, I'm not dismissing the significance, of course, of believing in God. But that in itself is, is not a, a distinctly Christian testimony or confession. What place does Christ Jesus have in our faith, first of all? And what place does Jesus Christ have in our testimony? And these things really go together, right? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I must confess, I'm always a little bit disappointed. And it may be owing to a kind of reserve that maybe characterizes a lot of Dutch old folks. But I'm always disappointed when I have to almost poke and prod in order to get a distinctly Christian testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ from the mouths of Reformed Christians. Again, that's not to dismiss the value of hearing people testify that they uh, are thankful that God always took care of them and that they believe that he is near them and that he answers their prayers. Those are things that are very good. And, and maybe they they, they uh, just are not conscious of how important it is to get right to the heart of that Christian testimony and speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give testimony to your faith in the Savior who died for your sins. Make abundantly clear that your confidence is not that you've been a good Reformed Christian all your life and have gone to church and tried to do the right thing. That's not a Christian testimony. A Christian confession is of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So what place does Christ have in our faith and in our in our testimony? Does it come out in our talk about God and about matters of faith? Is it clear that indeed our faith in God is inseparable from a faith in his son? And then finally, as we would honor the son, even as we honor the father, love the son, love him. I, I kind of passed over that statement of our, of our Lord in verse uh, 20 where he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. The Father loves the Son with an infinite and eternal delight in his eternally begotten Son with whom, along with the Holy Spirit, they had blessed, inexpressible fellowship among the persons of their own divine nature. Yes, high, high mysteries here, brothers and sisters.
The Father loved the Son. The Father loved the Son as he uh, so willingly undertook the work of our redemption. Therefore, does my Father love me because I lay down my life for the sheep that I may take it again? Jesus was very conscious of the Father's love for him as he faithfully, in the midst of suffering, carried out the work that was given him to do, bringing glory to the Father, the accomplishment of redemption for sinners. In loving the Son, we have fellowship with the Father. The same object is the focus of our delight and our love. Love the Son. Honor the loveliness of the Son, our Savior. He is worthy. He is worthy of the love of all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Amen.